TransUnion says credit card delinquencies are expected to rise in the year ahead. And today, our Cranes 40 Under 40 Spotlight is on energy-efficient housing. I'll talk with A.J. Patton, founder of 548 Enterprise. It's, it's one thing with cars, but I think it's different when we're talking about how we power our homes, how we feed our children, how we live our everyday lives. And so we don't have time to wait on the marketplace to kind of evolve over a generation or two. We need to be more intentional in the gaps. And so I think that's where, frankly, Amy, that's where we need to provide leadership. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, December 15th. At Wintrust Community Banks, you're more than just another account number. No matter your stage of life, Wintrust's dependable bankers are as dedicated to your financial success as you are. After three decades of serving communities across Chicagoland, Wintrust has built its reputation on exceptional customer satisfaction and a strong local presence. That's why Wintrust is proud to be ranked number one in customer satisfaction in retail banking in Illinois by J.D. Power. Visit Wintrust.com slash J.D. Power to learn more about Wintrust's award-winning banking experience. Members FDIC. For J.D. Power 2022 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. I'm joined by A.J. Patton, CEO and founder of 548 Enterprise, who was recently named to Crane's 40 Under 40 Class of 2022. AJ, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here today. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. So tell me about your organization and, and the work that you do. So 548 Enterprise, we founded it in uh, 2016 around the concept that all communities deserve access to clean energy and sustainable technologies. And so what we wanted to start with was solar-powered affordable housing and then extending that out to uh, solar installations as well as just solar training and just believing that all these communities deserved access to the sustainable revolution that was happening right now. And so we felt like there was a gap in, in where the technologies were being applied. And so we wanted to serve as the bridge uh, for people to have access. And what were your early challenges in, in getting that operation started? Well, I think two things. I think the big one's always access to capital. You know, the moment you go to the marketplace and say, we're going to install solar panels in Inglewood or... North Lawndale, the banks look at you a little sideways. Um, and, and then also, I, I think even the technology world and the sustainable and environmental justice markets, they had never seen it. They had never seen it, nor have they seen it to scale. And it's oftentimes we're the first, the first to do VRF technologies, the first to go energy efficient, the first to do passive house, you know, really kind of pressing the envelope on all electric we're really kind of the first development company in many moments to kind of push these kind of technologies out there. And so I, I think even bringing the historical environmental advocates to say that, hey, these aren't just technologies that need to be applied on skyscrapers, but what about six flats in North Lawndale? And then behind that, telling the banks and tax equity investors and so forth that these communities deserve to participate. They need EV charging stations too, because eventually that infrastructure will be necessary for everyone to participate. And so I think we had to bring everybody to the table and say these communities were worthy and, and kind of address those headwinds uh, straight on. So you've said before in interviews that, that you believe that real estate can be developed for both profit and purpose. Is that really part of that? Is that that bigger vision? 
Absolutely. You know, we are for profit and I don't, I don't get away from that, but frankly, we turn the model upside down by saying, instead of trying to extrapolate as much uh, value out of the particular tenants or, or the community members, why not build in the most efficient manner so that we're not leaning on them for value? And so, you know, from where I said, if I can make the building operate more efficiently and lower operating expenses, that lessens my need to ask for higher rents. And so we really, really press on energy efficiency, all electric, rooftop solar, passive house. That's a better living experience as well for the for the families and community members. So, yeah, we still believe in it. That's that's really our calling card. What drew you to this this sector? <laughs> um, in nineteen ninety nine. My mother was making 10 bucks an hour and we got a $400 gas bill and she could not afford the gas bill. And so subsequently we got our gas cut off and for almost a year. I had to boil water to take a bath. And when I travel the country, depending on which communities I'm speaking to, that is either shocking or that is a rite of passage. And I think both impact me significantly. What I'm trying to, to do is so that no one has that experience ever again. And a lot of that is being intentional about what we do in the built environment um, and by bridging the gap of why people don't believe that uh, sustainable technologies don't belong in every community. And we need to change that narrative. And so that was my lived experience. And I know what it means to be exposed to the, the comforts and what it means to have your utilities cut off and, and so forth. I wanted to change that so that wasn't the experience for anyone else. So what do you think the barrier is to to why people might believe that that technology doesn't belong in every community? Is that because it's still kind of considered a luxury or what is that? I, 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 some of it is luxury. I think some of it's just intentionality. And, and as we know with the marketplace, it, it, everything kind of flows relatively downstream. And so when you start thinking of Tesla's at $200,000 and then eventually electric cars will become more accessible. Well, it's, it's one thing with cars, but I think it's different when we're talking about how we power our homes, how we feed our children, how we live our everyday lives. And so we don't have time to wait on the marketplace to kind of evolve over a generation or two. We need to be more intentional in the gaps. And so I think that's where, frankly, Amy, that's where we need to provide leadership, you know, um, and, and that's where I really think re- where our company adds value is just we're just providing the thought leadership to say, hey, we'll carry the flag and hopefully we inspire others to do the same. So a question I, I always like to ask people in leadership positions is what do people outside of your industry not know about your field or what do they often misunderstand that you wish they understood better? Interesting. Um, what do they not understand that, that these systems pay for themselves? I think what often people miss is that in the sustainable and energy efficiency world, these systems create savings that pay for themselves. So if you're willing to even be remotely patient, what looks like a significant capital expenditure on the front end has a very quick turnaround time. When we first started this business and and started going down this path and we started doing our education, we're talking about ROIs of seven years to pay for these type of technology commitments. Oftentimes now these are cut in half, two, three year turnaround times to, to pay for more efficient windows or more efficient uh, HVAC systems or more insulation in a roof or a wall. 
those things now pay for themselves within a couple of years. So why not be a more patient investor and, and say that these communities are worthy and merit these type of technologies? And I think that's lost in the marketplace where if you're building a skyscraper, you can just charge people $5,000 a month rent and get that money back very quickly. Well, in North Lawndale or Auburn Gresham or South Chicago, you know, market rent 600 bucks. We need to be a little more patient and, and dare I say, extend these communities a little more grace while, while they're working through and growing and evolving and doing what's best for their families. What challenged you professionally in the early stages of the pandemic the most? In the early stages of the pandemic, wow. Um, the banks absolutely deserted the communities that we care about. And um, they essentially stopped all resources going out, not just to my company, but several companies. Uh, there's an old saying that when certain communities get the cold, other communities get the flu. And that's exactly what happened. Everyone talks about, Amy, you cover it all the time, the, the trials and tribulations of what's going on downtown. 10x that about what's going on the south and west sides. And uh, you saw that play out and exacerbated both in the pandemic, both from a community health perspective, but also from a, a financial and investment perspective. Trying to invest in our communities during the pandemic was a Herculean effort and near impossible because a lot of the spigots were just turned off. So in leadership, some lessons we get through a mentor or through advice or something like that, and then sometimes we get those lessons the hard way. What is a leadership lesson that has, has stuck with you or been kind of a North Star guide point for you so far? Okay, I'm, I'm to go down a bit of a rabbit hole for a second, but bear with me. One of the things that I'm really passionate about is um, what I thought was going to be the most impactful part of 548 was the sustainable portion of our work. Equally as important of what our work is, is who we hire. Not just the technology that we execute with, but who we hire. Because now I realize not only am I the lead investor and developer, but I'm also the lead hirer and procurement officer in all of my deals. And so now I said, okay, there's all these people and contractors in these communities and service providers that historically have not gotten their just due or their opportunity. Now I can be the flag bearer and, their, and, and the creator of space for them. And so we are probably somewhere in the 80% on minority and women-owned contracting and service providing and being really intentional about that. And that has shifted the marketplace in a significant manner in terms of what we've done and how we've scaled. Um, and so there are all types of people of color and women who are getting their breakthrough opportunities by the trailblazing work that we're doing. Simultaneously, the other lesson in that is that you also have to set them up for success. You can't just give them an opportunity and run away. You've got to surround them with all the necessary resources for them to be successful. Do they have the access to capital? Do they have the administrative and operational back office support? Do they have a cheerleader once they are being done successful? Who's amplifying the success that they had? So this is not just a one-off, Amy. You know, if a tree falls in the, in the forest, does anyone know if, it, if no one heard it, right? And so oftentimes I'm going to be the guy with the megaphone saying, hey, have you guys ever heard of Melanie Millhouse? Because she's great. Do you know Leslie Roth? 
the next great star architect for the city of Chicago, because I think you need to know who she is, right? And and I'm going to keep banging the drum for these young women and people of color because they're they're the next thing. And if no one else is going to sing for them, I think I should. And that was one of the lessons that I learned coming out of the pandemic. Mm. So what is your uh, what is your big vision for your organization? What is kind of the pie in the sky? Um, you know, I, I think we can absolutely take the show on the road. I would love to go to more markets. We're talking in more markets. So we're doing the real estate and we're doing the solar installation. I, I think this can be scaled, frankly, to multiple markets across the country and to abroad. Um, but I, I think that's the focus is to do more full service, renewable energy and real estate development all under one house, because I think those uh, those those integrate appropriately. So what's the, the next big project for you in the new year? Rolling out the training program. What we're calling it is the 540 Energy Institute. Inside of our foundation, we are announcing that we're going to open a new sustainable campus. We're going to raise 20 million bucks. We just received our first donation of almost a million dollars two weeks ago. And we're going to start cohort one late January, teaching people how to install solar, how to be good citizens, and to prepare for the sustainable technology renaissance that's happening right now. And we're going to give them the jobs. We've got contracts already. So we're going to bring in 15 people, get them into the program, start them in late January, do another one in May, and really kind of build the labor force as well as uh, if they'd like to spin out and start their own small business, incubate them and seed them as well. So we're going to be really intentional about creating that bridge and then bringing people over. And the people that are in that cohort, they have interest in entering that field or they're already somewhat in the field? All the above. We're going to take all comers. We've got great community partners to help us source and find people who are interested. Um, You don't have to have a background in it to learn. We've got a great uh, nationally certified curriculum that we're going to tap into. Great partners nationally on the nonprofit side to help us with the the academy, and we're and we're going to go that route. All right, you can read all about the 2022 class of Cranes 40 Under 40 at ChicagoBusiness.com. AJ, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up, as Stellanis considers its future in Belvedere, Governor Pritzker moves to sweeten new incentives for electric vehicles. We'll talk about that and more right after this. The Greater Chicago Food Depository is working to help communities facing an elevated need right now. Decades-high inflation is making it even harder for our neighbors to afford groceries, and food insecurity is above pre-pandemic levels. Children are at greatest risk, with one in four facing hunger. Let's rise to the challenge, Chicago. Your neighbor is hungry. Give what you can to the Greater Chicago Food Depository at chicagosfoodbank.org. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. U.S. credit card and personal loan delinquencies are likely to rise in 2023 to the highest in a dozen years, with lenders cutting back on originations as a potential recession looms. According to a forecast released Wednesday by Chicago-based credit reporting firm TransUnion, serious card delinquencies are expected to climb to 2.6% by the end of next year, from 2.1% at the close of 2022. 
Delinquency rates for unsecured personal loans are expected to gain to 4.3%, up from 4.1%. Michelle Rainieri, vice president of U.S. research and consulting at TransUnion, said in an interview with Bloomberg, quote, the liquidity people had is going away, noting that inflation is a huge contributor. Bloomberg reported, citing TransUnion, that credit card originations are expected to slump 7.6% next year, while still remaining higher than last year's total. The projected drop-off would follow two years of aggressive loan growth, especially for credit cards and personal loans, and serious delinquency rates close to pre-pandemic levels. Outside of credit cards and personal loans, another area of lending is also seeing drop-off in originations. Mortgages, as the Federal Reserve has been boosting interest rates in an attempt to curb inflation. Bloomberg noted in reporting that the average rate for a 30-year fixed loan surged past 7% this year, the first time it's broken that level in two decades and originations of loans for home purchases and to refinance existing mortgages have dropped off as a result and are expected to continue sliding next year. Crane's Albie Galoon reported that a Chicago developer plans a 136-unit apartment building near the intersection of North and Clybourne that's part of a push to create what was described as essential housing, affordable to more people. CityPads Chicago aims to construct the four-story building at 1523 North Fremont, that according to a zoning application filed with the city. Galoon noted in reporting, citing CityPads principal and managing partner Andy Ahitau, that the project will include small apartments, about 500 square feet on average, at affordable rents for people who earn 60% to 140% of the area median income. Ahitao, who calls it essential housing, is focused on the middle of the market in other places too, including Evanston, where CityPads is developing a 120-unit building called Tapestry Station that's expected to open at the end of next year. In Edgewater, CityPads completed a 105-unit project called Edge on Broadway in 2020. Ahital told Cranes that though CityPad projects are affordable to middle-income renters, they're actually more profitable than a typical high-end apartment development. He explained that because its units are smaller, CityPads can collect a higher rent per square foot overall, even if its rent per unit, what landlords call chunk rent, is lower. In other words, renting more units at lower prices can generate more revenue than fewer units at higher prices. Galoon noted in reporting, citing the zoning application, that to comply with the city's affordable housing rules, CityPads plans to set aside 20% of the apartments in its project, or 27 units, as affordable to tenants who earn 60% of the area median income on average, which is $43,800 per year for a one-person household. On the upper end of CityPads' targeted income range, 140% of the area median income works out to just over $100. $102,000 per year. CityPads told Cranes it aims to wrap up construction by late 2024 and that it will finance its pre-construction costs through a $10 million general partner fund it recently raised. The company also reportedly plans to use money from the fund to expand to the Los Angeles market. But as Galoon also noted, before it can break ground on the near north side development, CityPads needs the city council to approve a zoning change for the property and must also secure construction financing to pay for it. The Wirtz family's plan to develop 740 acres of farmland in Lake County 
cleared its first big hurdle this week when the Mundelein Village Board approved a proposal to annex the property. Representatives of the Wurtzes, who have owned the property along Illinois Route 60 since before the Civil War, unveiled an ambitious proposal for the site that would include 3,200 homes, both rentals and homes for sale, and more than 2 million square feet of retail, industrial, and other commercial space. Called Ivanhoe Village, the plan would also preserve part of Ivanhoe Farms, a working nursery and farm on the property. The Lake County property is the oldest asset in the Wirtz family empire that includes Breakthrough Beverage Group, a major alcohol wholesaler, two banks, the United Center, and the Chicago Blackhawks. The family has owned the Lake County land since 1857, when German immigrant Michael Wirtz bought the first parcel of what became Ivanhoe Farms. A planning firm hired to map out the development, DPZ Co-Design, shared its vision for the site with the village board, borrowing ideas from other large-scale projects it has designed around the country. The Miami-based firm is reportedly a champion of new urbanism and traditional neighborhood design, a master planning philosophy that embraces compact, walkable communities with a mix of uses and housing types. The approach represents a rejection of the car-oriented subdivision in suburban America. Albie Galoon reported that DPZ's plans received a warm reception from the Mundelein Village Board, which voted unanimously to approve an agreement to annex the property. Amanda Orenchunk, Mundelein's Director of Community Development, said in a statement that the annexation is an early but important step in a longer planning process. But ultimately, the vision for the project would feature a village center with about 250,000 square feet of small-scale retail space. And the plans also include roughly 1.8 million square feet of commercial, healthcare, and industrial space, parks and athletic fields, a network of walking trails, and multiple ponds and lakes in addition to housing. As discussed on a previous episode of Crane's Daily Gist, Stellanis recently announced it was idling its aging Belvedere plant, which assembles gas-powered Jeeps. Soon after, Mark Stewart, the Stellanis chief operating officer for North America, told Crane's that the automaker is continuing to look at what they can do to repurpose that facility, noting that idle is not the same as closed. Crane's political columnist Greg Hines reported that with the future of the Stellanis Belvedere assembly plant hanging in the balance, The Pritzker administration is moving to again bulk up financial incentives for electric vehicle makers and parts producers. And this time, other types of businesses would also be in line for more help too, including firms in the clean energy business and those seeking payroll tax credits by way of the EDGE program of economic development for a growing economy. Under the measure expected to be put to a vote in the General Assembly's January lame duck session, Governor J.B. Pritzker would get the huge so-called deal-closing fund that other governors have. Hines noted that insiders say the lack of such a fund recently cost the state a battery plant, which instead was won by Michigan. Hines also noted in reporting that the amount is being negotiated with General Assembly leaders, but Governor Pritzker has previously suggested he'd like to have as much as $1 billion on hand to match offers from other states. Beyond that, according to a fact sheet and a draft bill shared with legislative leaders viewed by Cranes, those seeking EDGE grants would no longer have to meet a but-for requirement, showing that they would not have created jobs here without assistance. The proposed legislation would also double the EDGE credit to 50% for locations in underserved areas and increase the physical size of enterprise zones to as much as 20 square miles.
Hines also noted the legislature only two weeks ago approved Governor Pritzker's request to both widen and extend tax credits for EV makers and suppliers. Another clause in the new proposal seems aimed at parts makers, perhaps, Hines notes, with an eye toward recreating the sort of supplier park that has developed near Ford's Torrance Avenue plant on the south side of the city. The provision would lower the amount of invested capital required for EV tax credits from $20 million down to $2.5 million. It would also expand qualifying companies to include manufacturers of solar, renewables, and energy storage components like batteries. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, 548 Enterprise CEO and founder, A.J. Padden. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.